The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I am your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Thanks for being with me today. Please do not hesitate to be in touch with questions, comments, and to let me know who you might like to see me have on the show. You can find links to my social media and website on my host page at Voice America, and you can also get on my email list. Today, I'm welcoming Rachel Blythe Codenaz. Rachel is an author, speaker, and coach who provides encouragement to those who are suffering a loss or setback. Overcoming her own adversity following the sudden death of her husband, leaving her with a two-year-old daughter, and her experience in the management of large corporations led her to develop and publish resources about how to support grief and loss in the workplace. Rachel holds a B.A. in Business Administration from Bryant University. She is a columnist for Living with Loss magazine and has published numerous articles on grief. A Grief in the Workplace Management Guide and her book, Living with Loss One Day at a Time, have received international acclaim. Rachel Rachel speaks nationally to many organizations and has appeared on Good Morning America She's available for speaking appearances, educational programs, interviews, and community outreach. And she's inspired thousands of people with her unique blend of presentations and workshops. Her authentic down-to-earth messages are sure to inspire you to learn, laugh, and live. And for more information about Rachel, you can go to www.rachelkodanaz.com. Rachel, welcome to Good Grief. Well, thank you, and thank you for having me on today. Absolutely. One thing I especially appreciated about your book is that the entries are, you know, less than a page. They're very, they're very chewable. Um, they're short enough that a person in early grief. Um, could I think not become overwhelmed I know I know for me when I'm in early grief after a loss I just can't read that much um, can't read that long a, a, a thing is that part of what your thinking was about it um, absolutely it was many many years of gathering information um, I didn't write it to close to 20 years after my husband passed away and I just had so many people telling me different aspects of their journey. So I just started to write notes on it. And when I was trying to pull it together in a book, I thought, okay, what better way is it to have 365 lessons and thoughts in grief, short, as you said, 
no beginning, no end. It wouldn't matter if you're three, six, three months out from the loss or you're 10 years out from the loss. Just a little tidbit of a daily encouragement. Yeah, I imagined, of course, there are many, you know, one day at a time books in the um, in the recovery community, for instance, and a few in the meditation community. Um, and it seemed to me it could work two ways, obviously, because I read it sort of all in one piece, there was a sense of, of movement to it, uh, as if it was a first year of grief, but then I could also imagine people just opening it anywhere. Well, it's interesting that you say that because I've heard different views on, you know, it's wonderful about social media. You get many emails and, and people reaching out to you as they read the book. I did start the first six months or the first 60 days as more of the early stages of grief and loss just because I wanted to set the stage for newer you know, people that were newly, newly grieving. But I also get all kinds of comments from people in the, in the first 100 days that like for example finding your song that's something that doesn't really have to do whether it's the first month or 10 years later you still want that song that you had with your loved one so i get all kinds of comments about that but that was an interesting um approach yeah i i uh you know i it's very interesting for me lately because i'm in i'm a i'm a what well seasoned griever <laughs> since my wife died in 1995 and I'm also a fresh griever uh, with my mother dying just, you know, several months ago. And um, I've noticed that there are, there are parts of it that are common to both and then some parts that are so, so different um, because of the new and old, because of the difference of relationships. And I, I felt you, you made the book pretty, pretty accessible for different times. There was, there was a kind of an invitation to specific things to try, but not a um, do this. Well, I really want, you know, it's interesting that you said that one as well, because as grievers, we hear what you should and shouldn't do all the time. I mean, everybody yes. has the, everybody has the answer for you to stop crying or to get your pull your boots back up. Yet they've never walked in your shoes, so they just they just want to fix you and make you feel better. So when I was writing this, I wanted to make it in a way that it was not fixing you, not telling you what to do, just having you think of different aspects. Like just one day asking, you know, heaven, where is it? Well, it's wherever you want it to be. There's no rules here. Mm -hmm. So each day, all I want you to do is just kind of ponder. And, and that example that I gave of, you know, heaven and where is it? It's just a piece for you to just drive to work one day and just think about that. It reminds me, I have a page on my website, just just things for people to try, you know, just a page of things for people to try. And the last one is, uh, listen to yourself, you're the only one who knows how to grieve or something like that. And my daughter was helping with me with my website and she said, well, mom, if if the last one's true, why do you need all the other ones? <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's cute. That's cute. <laughs> it is. And And she was right. And also... Not right. The, you know, there is a sense that if somebody has grieved and they're saying, sometimes this feels good, you know, sometimes this helps. That is a helpful thing, even if it may not, nine of them may not be things that'll work for you. Right. But the 10th right. might. Right. And you took a different approach on it for us to have this relationship and talk today. You read a book that was designed to read like one day at a time and you read it, you know, cover to to cover, you know, fairly quickly, which 
gives you, you know, gives you a, a real feel of the book. However, it also doesn't give the full chance to ponder each notion of what is shared along the way. Absolutely. I just didn't want to wait a year for our interview. <laughs> <laughs> and I appreciate that myself, and I hope your audience does as well. But, but it was, in a sense, um, interesting to read the whole thing at once from my perspective, because um, there were certain things that... Um, that ran through it that I'm that I'm assuming are things about you. For instance, um, I, I felt you really investigated metaphor quite deeply, and and that's such making meaning. You know, is such a big thing with grief. So I appreciated that quite a bit, and I think I got more a sense of that reading the whole book at once. Probably yes, I agree with you. Um, and I and I like the listeners to get a chance to hear uh, one section that is that does kind of exemplify that the the section on finding an anchor. Okay. So to talk about that a little bit, what I was trying to do when I was writing the book, I was trying to make it real to real life because I felt as if when my husband died and my recovery and me sharing all these years of helping people in the workplace and outside the workplace, I hear the the. I hear a repeated notion all the time, and that is that why did this happen to me or how did this happen and how do I survive? And what I keep going back to is that this is truly unfortunate, but it's truly life. Mm-hmm. And so what I try to do is, is throughout my book is knowing that my reader is hurting, knowing that my reader is, hurt, is searching for answers of why me and how this happened to me, I try to just, like you said, make metaphors to what real life was. And, the, and, and the, what you're referring to is on day 251, I do an analogy and, and a relationship with finding an anchor. And the reason why I chose the different words that I did, and specifically this one, because we'll talk about this for a minute, is that I wasn't, I didn't feel like I was, my feet were in the ground anywhere. And Mm -hmm. I kept searching for something that would give me a stability. And I couldn't figure out what it was. And I spent many years without that stability. Of course, some of us spent a lifetime without that stability. So when I was making the list of what days and what I want to share on each day, one of the ideas came, what if you had an anchor that was holding you through your emotions, through your changes of your life? What if something could just hold you steady and you'd be secure? So that's how I came up with finding an anchor. Mm. So... Uh, do you, did you want me to read it? No, I'd be more than happy to read it. Oh, okay, I didn't know if you want me to read it right now. Sorry about that. Okay. Yes, yes. So day 251, finding an anchor. There are so many different forms of anchors. An anchor can hold a boat in place while it is floating in water. An anchor can finish a relay at a track or a swim meet. An anchor could be a piece of hardware in a wall to hold a picture in place. An anchor can be mounted in a, in a rock to hold a climber's rope. In these cases, the anchor is used to secure the location or fasten an object or person. In grief, we discover our anchors based on the people who have cared for and shielded us from additional pain, those who protect and hold us firmly in place as we travel through our journey. You know, what what really, really uh, struck me that I guess was implied in that section is, uh, I believe I've said many times when I'm when I'm facing a loss, I feel unmoored. Oh, that's uh, interesting. Yep. Yep. And, and so in some way, that sense of being unmoored 
um, boy, how comforting to think, yeah, you're, you're, the water's moving around and stuff, but there's some kind of anchor that, that is holding you even during that. Well, what's interesting for me is that, again, again, getting the emails and social media and and the context that I receive from people that have read the book is on this particular day, 251, is that the book becomes a, let's call it a dinnertime conversation or even because each page has space on it, a journaling opportunity. And what I hear is, and it's interesting that we're talking about this one, is that one of one of the emails I received was from a family that the father had died. So the children were, um, were they were sitting around a dinner table and they all recited who their anchor was and what their anchor was and why. Mm-hmm. And so it created, instead of just being so distraught that dad died, I mean, obviously they're still distraught that dad died, but they just talked about who in their life is strong for them, who in their life is there for them. That, that seemed to me to be another another thread i didn't i didn't uh, get the feeling which um which i resonate i didn't get the feeling that you were trying to change grief you were trying to make grief doable and that's pretty much my that's interesting that you said that Cheryl my that's what i try to do with the book i can't change i mean you can't change how you feel with this emptiness that you you get when you're grieving the loss of someone. And I'm one that does not, like my life didn't, I thought it ended, but it didn't end and me start over when my husband passed away. What I learned from that loss and the loss of my mother and all the other losses that I've had in my life, it shapes me to who I am. So you really need to keep going. So it's not about fixing grief or changing grief. It's about moving it into your life and redesign, redefining that relationship with your loved one. And I, I like the sense, I, I like that you're emphasizing you wrote this book 20 years later, mm-hmm. um, because I have noticed, because I'm talking with people who have suffered huge loss every week, um, I have been in my in my therapy practice, but now it's sort of a fresh person each week. There is a sense of difference between, say, the first three years and 20 years. Um, there is something different, but what makes each of those phases doable is a sense of some form of support, whatever that is for people, don't you think? I do, and what's interesting that you, again, that you said that is that by profession, I was, you know, a business major with um, information technology and telecommunications, which means black and white on off one zero. Mm-hmm. And so when I'm, you know, as I went through my grief and I tried to make sense of it, it's really hard to make sense of something that is so emotional and not logical. So when I wrote the book, what I wanted to do is, and I really, like I said, spent many years figuring out what this book would look like. I wanted to make it that life was a little bit more logical, although it's extremely emotional and I'm not taking that away from anything or anyone, but I just wanted to set kind of a stage that says that this is, you know, things happen to us along the way and we have to embrace, embrace life's challenges, the expected and the unexpected. And here's a couple ways that you can, you know, you could take the pain and work through it. And when we talked earlier about it, you know, the sense of whether this book is for somebody that's early grieving or 10 years out, what you're sharing there is that that's why this, we get to span how far out and it doesn't matter how far out you're in your loss you are because it will provide everybody the opportunity to introspect and ponder. And there's something so valuable about that. I, I mean, obviously, 
um, what you do in your life and work and what I do are based on those experiences. Correct. So we couldn't, we couldn't do what I, I mean, I, I know people do all types of things around grief and loss, but I really feel I can connect with the people that I work with because I could just see the pain in their eyes and see their desire to reestablish the relationship and just figure out some of the steps along the way. Uh, yes. And, and uh, I somehow feel it's sort of an important message for people who maybe um, have, have suffered a recent loss that eventually after a long time and sometimes not so long a time, a lot of people want to do something with their grief. They, they don't want to escape it. You know, right. I, don't, I don't want to escape my grief. It's, uh, I value it. Um, that's really the only difference. It still hurts, but <laughs> I, I just don't want to get out of it. Well, but you want to st- spend your time with your loved one as long as you can. And if you stay in your grief, you get to be with your loved one on a different, you know, a different plateau than you would if you just, you know, jo- don't take, th- take them with you. And uh, maybe you'd, you'd agree. We'll see. Um, engaging with grief is, to a degree, engaging with life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, there's no way out of it, as you said a little bit ago. It's just part of the package. Correct. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Sooner or later, if we're lucky to live long enough. But I, everybody, it's, you know, they, there's always the joke, especially when you hang out with gr- people that are working with grief, is that, you know, it's the only, the only thing that we can guarantee is that you are going to die and there's going to be people around you that are going to die. And it's how you, we can't stop that from happening, but what we do have control over is how we react to it. Yes. Well, the other thing that, that I noticed in what I would consider a transformational lost loss is that the things that had already taught me before that they maybe didn't completely transform me, but they taught me were also losses. I, uh, I think cause that creates pain and pain create gives us an opportunity to reevaluate. Yes. And, and sort of, a, um, if it's big enough, you can't really get out of it. You know, no, you can't. You have to do something. Something with it. <laughs> right. Right. Absolutely. We're going to take a break now, and when and when we come back, uh, you know, we have something in common, which is that when our our spouses died, we each had two year olds. Oh. And um, I also had a teenager, but uh, she was a little more. Uh, that's a different thing. Having a two year old is mighty. Uh, and, um, I want to talk about, you know, that, that early time and what it's like to try to balance all of those various forces when, uh, because that's a grief where you really do have to continue. You have to continue parenting. You have to, you know, and, uh, I know for myself that really impacted me. So I want to talk some with you about that when we get back. So listeners, during the break, go to my social media, let me know about what you're thinking today about the show, connect with me. I am available for counseling appointments anywhere in California, and I'm available as a speaker and consultant worldwide. And then to find out more about Rachel Cadenas, go to www.rachelkodanaz.com. Back after the break. Thank you. 
your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Real Life Solutions. Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones, and today I'm talking with Rachel Cadenas, an expert in workplace support during loss and a sought-after speaker about grief. She's also the author of the books Living with Loss One Day at a Time and Grief in the Workplace. So what one thing we have in common is that we are both young, and we both had two-year-olds when our spouses died, um, although... It was very different because my wife was sick for a long time. You know, I sort of knew it was coming. And I find sometimes the the losses I haven't experienced are sort of incomprehensible. (laughs) You know, oh, my God, suddenly. Um, So we we do and don't, you know, have have a similar experience. And when I was reading about the way that you lost your husband, there was a sort of punched in the gut feeling for me. Um, just because uh, that long process I had with my wife was made it a very different experience uh, than it would have been if it was sudden. And I, I wonder if you could just talk about that time, uh, kind of let the listeners know what happened and what it was like initially. So my husband was 32 and I was 31, and we were pretty big athletes. We were both um, in corporate America information technology, telecommunications, and we had just moved to Kansas City uh, for Sprint. And for the listeners, it's not like the cell phones we have. This was back in the days of, of truly long distance when AT&T was being broken up by the, by the government. So what happened was he went to work on this particular day. He was perfectly healthy. Um, we ran eight miles at lunch because, again, we both worked at the same company. And then when he was walking out of work, he just he opened his car door, sat down, and he just dropped um, his head on the steering wheel. And the people in the parking structure at the time pulled him out and tried CPR, but as they said, that he was 
he was gone. We did a full autopsy, but it was just arrhythmia, this electronic malfunction of the heart, and that was that, which we hear, you know, often in athletes, young athletes. Mm. So, I, you know, I got the telephone call, and but it was, you know, it, as you said, it was a shock that was... I just think I said a thousand times, this is not me. This didn't, you have the wrong person. This didn't happen to me, but I, you know, they had the right person. So were you still at work when you got that call? No, um, I, we had talked at the end of the day, he was going to pick up our daughter at daycare and he said he was running a few minutes behind. Would you mind, um, you know, grabbing her on the way home? And when I got home, it was strange that he wasn't home because he should have been home before me. And again, pre-cell phones. So the phone was ringing and it was a person, it was HR at Sprint and said, you know, there had been an accident in the parking garage. So I just thought that maybe he got hit by a rolling car. A car wreck or something. Right. Yeah. You know, what could happen in a parking structure? But, you know, it's a good thing that they approached it that way because I don't think I could have ever gotten to the hospital. And I got so they there. didn't actually tell you on the phone. No, and I learned all while I was sitting there was why they don't do that, and all the TV shows why they try not to do it because you just the shock of it. There's no, there's no way you could. At least I couldn't function. I was a horror movie of a person when I was told, and you could remember it even though it's been 22 years. I can remember it as if it was yesterday. You know, I've been I've been um, studying post traumatic growth. I don't know if you've heard of that field, but um, it's quite quite wonderful to me, the idea that there is such a thing. But one thing they're very clear to talk about is that it doesn't take away the trauma. If you touch that moment when you found out that he had died, it's still traumatic. It is. And what's so interesting is being with people, because we are on a grieving, um, you know, talk show right now, is that people outside the grief world don't understand why it's with you forever. It doesn't have to be that sad and that hurtful, but it's there forever. It's just as if you were, you know, you can remember your high school graduation. Absolutely. Well, uh, yes. And in a way more, uh, more even intense than an experience like that. Correct, correct. Uh, It's just, at least for me, I don't, uh, it's just a part of me. I don't mind that anymore. But uh, you can still reconnect with those feelings, can't you? Yes. Like, (laughs) I I realize I'm always inviting people to do that by asking these questions to, to reconnect. And was your daughter with you? Yes, she was. And that was when I walked into the hospital, actually, I had this feeling while I was driving to the hospital that it was bigger than they had said. And I don't know why it just was a feeling. And when I walked in and introduced myself, you know, to the to the front desk, you know, no one looked up. So then I thought that was kind of strange. But I had my two year old on my arm. And when I was told that it happened, and then I said, well, it couldn't have been my husband, it was somebody else and a person stepped forward who I knew. So somebody identified him. And I just went down and my daughter went down with me. And that was the end. You know, she was just a mess because she was so scared of my behavior. I'm sure I scared her to, you know, that my behavior was pretty bad. But, you know, it it is what it is. I mean, and I'm not the only person. I think your behavior was very real. And, you know, I get, I don't know, you can play that a bunch of different ways, but to me it seems as if for her to know how profoundly that impacted you is not all bad. No, I don't think any of it, I just met with somebody yesterday who recently lost his wife and he has two young children, and we were talking about how do you tell a child on a sudden death, 
that their their that their parent um, had passed away. And it's where in your case, which I'd love to hear your side of it. In your case, you know, it was a, a prog. It was it was moving along, and your two year old saw it for a long period of time. Where my daughter just jumped up on the couch every every day. Daddy out running. Daddy home soon. Daddy at work. Daddy home soon. You know, yes. she kept re- she kept she couldn't understand it. And there's not a lot of ways to tell a child. I mean, there's Bambi, but Bambi was violent when Bambi's mom, you know, mom was died, and Nemo's mom was violent. So there's not a lot that a child can really understand, other than the emptiness that there's not a parent there right now. However. I do want to say uh, that my daughter never was confused about my wife being dead. And I think it was because we did prepare for that. Uh, for instance, we bought a steth- stethoscope, you know, when we knew it was getting closer. Because uh, she was asking questions. And we we listened to each other's hearts, and we said, "When you die, your heart doesn't beat anymore. Your body doesn't work anymore." We we were very uh, graphic, but that's so great because she. Un- I mean, great is all relative, but that's such a wonderful experience that she had to understand what were really was happening. Whether she understood what a heart was or not, you know, she got it. That she got to see it, well, hear it, and just such great nurturing. It's wonderful. Well, and also we had a wake. Wonderful. So, you know, there were 36 hours of being with my wife's body in the house. And she was there when she died. I mean, I think there's there's some sense of us protecting children because we don't know how to deal with it. But my experience is children handle it very well if they know what's going on. I agree. And, and if, even if they don't, like I tried every day to explain that daddy died and that, you know, explained as, as much as I could. Right. You know, I mean, it's hard to know when it really clicked for her. It clicked for her that daddy wasn't coming back, but how that a human dies, I'd, I don't know exactly what age that clicked in for her. Yeah. And probably clicked in differently at different ages. Don't you imagine? Yeah. I feel actually, it's interesting that you, you asked that or you said that is that I feel more now from her at 24, almost 25 years old, I feel more of the connection that she's trying, you know, in the last probably six years trying to figure it out. I think some of it in discussing it with her is that she's getting to be the age where I, you know, she's still got seven years, but she's getting to be the age where I was widowed and she can't imagine that I survived. Of course I survived. Mm-hmm. But that's where she is. So it's it's reconnecting once again, which is beautiful. I mean, it's wonderful. Cheryl, I say that people ask me um, many times, you know, that seems to be the common thread is, did she save me or did I save her? I think mm. it was probably a combination of both. Um, we just bonded on a level that was remarkable and you know, when mommy said no, it was no, there was no daddy to run to. But the piece of it that's that I just love to share is so I'm remarried and my husband has adopted her, adopted our, my daughter. And he says to people, there's an umbilical cord that forgot to, that no one cut. There's, you know, it's not a need, it's a want. So she lives in New York, which is 1800 miles away from me. Yet we are as if that's the world's longest umbilical cord. And mm-hmm. I thank my deceased husband. I don't thank him for dying, but I think that what that experience that he provided because of this unfortunateness has created a 
a relationship that, you know, you never know, would it have been there or not? That's, that's really, really interesting. Um, I mean, I'm sure that's my, my wife was already sick when we adopted our youngest daughter and the teenager was going through teenage regular stuff. It completely ended when she died. It was over (laughs) permanently and not because we avoided conflict, but we just didn't, we were like, we have to work this out. Because you connected on a different level, a different that was level. real, that was exactly. truly real. It was real, and and all of that stuff was just irrelevant after that. Yes, you know, we just we just got very good at facing our problems head on, talking them through. You know, there wasn't a big, uh, there was no more fight in us. Isn't that if great, that makes though? sense? No, it yeah. is wonderful. It's wonderful because, it is, as we talked about in the first segment, is Life has a beat to it, and it keeps going whether you want it to or not, and being able to understand it more. And I think that's what happened when we, happens when we, for at least you and I, when we lost our spouses so young, that there's that beat that keeps going, and either you got to take it on, well, you, and it's not that you have to, but you should, you know, take it on and, and, and embrace it. Mm-hmm. I feel it would be a good good moment for you to share grief is an anchor or a battlefield because we're ta- kind of talking about all the ways in which grief shows itself. Um, would you share that? So Sure. So it's day ADA and it's grief is a refuge or a battlefield. Uh, when I, And this thought before I read it, the thought that I had there was I wanted to be with my husband so bad. I just want I felt it was a refuge sitting in the closet on the floor, staring at his clothes or, you know, sitting at his desk and, and what types of things he had on his desk or holding his running shoes. I just thought it was a refuge. I was it was a safe haven for me. Mm-hmm. So when I was and everybody around me wanted to fix me. They wanted to see the old Rachel back, and I kept trying to tell them there'll be a new Rachel, but there won't be the old Rachel. So in this thought on day 88, it's called Grief is a Refuge or a Battlefield. I found grief to be a refuge, a safe haven where I could be with my deceased husband. I was protected from the outside world as I hid in my personal shelter with him, our sanctuary to be alone together where only we could understand the pain. The world outside my sanctuary was like a battlefield, a combat zone, of my own thoughts and emotions where I hung at the front line, being attacked by the people closest to me, hovering over me, wanting me to get out of the war zone. We all need a refuge from our grief, but we need the battlefield to win the clash. So I guess what I'm saying in summary is that hang out there for as long as you need to and just slowly step out and you're going to take some hits when you, when you step back out, but just, just, just put them all in perspective. Yeah, I and I I sort of uh, what I thought about with that is it's sort of a battlefield with no armor. Correct. Uh, <laughs> Very know? good. I, it's like I, should, in, I wish I knew in, you before I wrote that. Bit. You know, it's like <laughs> find some armor. But I didn't have any. I just felt no. like I was getting like I was a paint. I was a. I used to call it, and I know that some of the younger li- listeners probably don't even know what this is. But I felt like I was a ball in a pinball machine, just bouncing off different. Just, just just bouncing all over and people were telling me every time I hit hit something that I should do this and I should do that. So anyway, that was the theory behind that one. Yeah. Well, the other thing I thought that it was, um, you know, the way I probably express a similar idea is, um, uh, you have to let it happen, you know, so the battles have to happen to, you have to accept it in a way. Correct. Um, 
but I, I was really interested in the way you expressed that as uh, you have to battle, you know, you have to engage with what's painful. And as a widow, as with you, but I work with all different types of losses, but as a widow, some of that battlefield is being in a couple's world. Some yes. of that battlefield, some of that battle is being with now there's two of you in the household and you are taking all the responsibilities, you know, what, however you divided them before. That's a battlefield to get out there and figure it out. And, you know, in today's electronics means you really have to figure out where everything is and how the house was run. So everything is a battle. I mean, not, you know, going to bed at home, going to bed at night by yourself. It's a battle. Everything was a battle. That's why I wanted to hang out in his closet on the floor with his clothes. Yes. Yes. Uh, The other thing I noticed there, I was thinking about um, the economics of grief. Um, I probably made a pretty stupid financial decision, but I, I agreed before my wife died, I'd do anything I could, you know, anything I possibly could that I wanted in the first year. And so I had a lot of space and time. I I could be in the closet and then go out, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a funny metaphor given my my sexual orientation, but <laughs> you know. Um, but but I realized that is that is really a luxury um, and a and a privilege to be able to arrange. Even if I was borrowing the money, I could borrow the money, you know. Um, which and I I just. I just, when I'm working with people who don't have that option, who have to kind of go, 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 and have no time for that refuge, it's so painful. Right. And I was working and I had three offices. So one was in, because I was in Kansas City, I had one in in Dallas and one in Reston, Virginia. And I used to take my daughter with me on my business. I tried doing, leaving her behind and I couldn't do it. So I would take her, we figured out how to make it work. So we used to call it the hotel house and the mm. hotel car. <laughs> so, uh, so my refuge was when I came back on the weekends, I think my refuge was um, somewhat, it, it was emotional and it was at times, but it wasn't, I wasn't just hanging out in that closet all the time because I was, I didn't have that luxury. I was working full time. Yeah. I think that does make uh, somewhat of a difference um, for people. I, I know, I know it's different for me grieving my mom because my life has not stopped as much. Um, there's just less, less room to kind of, um, run around in my own experience, I guess is how I'd put it. Um, we're, we're almost ready for another break, but I'll tell you what I want to start with when we come back. And so that can get you kind of thinking about this. I think it's a very particular experience to be young and lose a spouse and eventually uh, remarry. Uh, And I thought we could talk about that a bit since we have that also in common. Um, And, you know, just what it's a it's a specific part of bridging uh, one life to the other. But I think uh, it's an important part. For people who have lost, you know, early in their early in their lives, um, so let's start there when we come back. Sounds great. Okay, I want to encourage you, listeners out there, to go to my Facebook page, follow me on Twitter, connect, contact me on LinkedIn. Everything's at the Good Grief page at Voice America. I really have appreciated and so valued the contact I've had with all of you 
who are listening, the Good Grief community. And find out more about Rachel Cadenas at www.rachelcadenas.com. Be back in a minute. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1 866 472 5792. That's 1 866 472 5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I'm here with Rachel Blythe Cadenas, author of Living with Loss, One Day at a Time. And what I wanted to start with in this section is is just talking about, you know, there, there are particular things to every type of loss, every relationship, every period of your life where you might experience a loss. But I... Since we have it in common, I really wanted to talk about the experience of of losing a love and coming to the place of choosing love again. Um, because uh, I know for me that was a very profound um, experience uh, that actually did um, kind of impact me in my grief uh it was a couple years later when i met my current wife um and boy it was a it was a huge grief experience to get involved again i don't know if that was true for you or not well it's it it's a process as you know it is a huge process and i said that i was never going to get married again i'm not sure where that came from, I think it's because I lost my love, my one and only, possibly because I was so afraid of being left again and the pain around that. I just clearly wasn't ready because the pain was still so right, so new and raw for me. And I wasn't going to date. And my husband, Tanir, who I'm married to now, he came through, you know, I, I met him and he pushed and he didn't push in a bad way. 
I, I tell people because he'll come to me often when I do facilitate some groups just to, because people like to ask him a lot of questions of what it was like to marry into a grieving family. And that's what the, what people call it. But, uh-huh. uh, but for me, I, I don't know if I would have been strong enough as he was because I pushed him away. He, but he thought to himself and he shares that all the time is that she was pushing me away. Yes, but I never once thought it was me. I thought it was her not ready to be married. And we did elope because I don't think if I went through telling people that I was getting married, that they would be like, well, how does that feel about with, you know, you and your deceased husband, Rod, and what is that going to do for Gretchen, my daughter, and what's that look like? And I didn't want to answer any of those questions. So we did elope. But the interesting piece is we went to an island. And when we got off the plane, I said to him, I can't do this. And he said to me, well, you know, just very sweetly, why can't you do it? And I said, I just was freaking out. And I said, Mm -hmm. because I don't know if I can call someone else my husband. Out of nowhere. Uh Cheryl, I can't say that Uh I thought about that on the airplane on the way down. It just, I got off the plane. I had a little, you know, I panicked and that's how it came out. And he said, okay, so maybe you don't call me your husband. You know, you knew I'd get there eventually, but he just took everything as matter of fact. And to this day, I still don't understand how he didn't for a second think it was him. That's really interesting because what I've found is that if if you if you marry someone who has lost their person, you really have to be generous of spirit and you have to be pretty secure. Because it's not like uh divorce whatsoever. Um for instance, when I met my current wife, my house was filled with things that you know, she used to call my house the altar to Joanne. <laughs> you know, there was things of hers everywhere. And there was no, I had felt no inner need to get rid of them. They were comforting. So just in that sense, and uh, and also she had to sort of, uh, you know, tolerate my freakouts, for instance, uh, seeing seeing her every night if i would be awake and she was asleep i would i would see her death mask you know she wasn't dead she was sleeping but that went on for a very long time so i think there is some way that the person has to be ready to incorporate the other experience the other person even well my husband says my current husband says to me you know we're he makes comments, you know, I can't compete with a dead guy. So it's, we're all in this together. And as you, like you, I present everywhere and people ask you the darndest questions because they're so curious Mm -hmm. and people ask me and they use this word, is your marriage crowded? And when I first (laughs) heard that, I, when I first heard that, I said, I didn't understand what it meant, but clearly I understand it now. And I said, no, it's not crowded. It's just what it is. It's, you know, we, ha- we call him Daddy Rod and Daddy Tanier for my daughter. And we call, you know, it's like I, I refer to them both in different parts of my life. And, you know, I've switched my career from telecommunication and information technology to speaking nationally and, inter- you know, internationally on grief. And so it's part of who I am now. And I don't think I could ever be with someone that actually stifled me and my relationship with my deceased husband in any way. Yeah, that that's what I'm talking about, maturity and wisdom, huh? 
you know? <laughs> well, but I had it even then. I mean, you know, I mean, I was young as where you were. And, you know, even in my late 30s, when I, you know, mid to late 30s, when I'm considering getting this remarriage, I mean, I had that wisdom, wisdom then is that I had my rules, how I came up with them. I could, I couldn't even answer that if you tried to get that out of me is that I wanted my deceased husband's family, no matter what it took, whether it was financially or physically or whatever it was, to be part of my life forever. And, you know, when there's five siblings on that side and 14 grandkids and so many other things, it's a lot of work. My daughter has 21 first cousins, and, I, and I've worked, you know, for 22 years keeping that all intact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and you had to have uh, buy-in. Yes. Yes. From, from well, your husband. But I if he know. didn't buy in, Cheryl, if he didn't buy in, he wouldn't be my husband. Exactly. Exactly. But um, so it's almost, I don't know, there's some way that there's almost a a litmus test. You know, when my wife was dying, uh, we had a therapist and she started meeting with us in our home. And uh, one day I, I looked at her and I said, so if I'm ever going to be with anyone again, I want to be with someone that I'm that I could die with. And uh, she said, "Whoa, that's a really high standard," <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and I said, "No, it's actually not. It's kind of the only standard, you know, <laughs> because why would I want to be with someone that I couldn't see helping them or being helped by?" And um, but it is not the way people typically think, is it, about relationship? So to me, my whole conception of what, what I expected of relationship changed. You know, it's, that goes both directions. So for me, I would never have known. I think I would have had an attitude if, this, if someone else came to me and said, this is what I'm trying to do, what do you think? I think my answer to that question prior to my husband's death would be very different than it is now. Mm. So uh, it's it's so hard to even try to have that conversation with someone that hasn't walked, like you and I could have that conversation because we're in it. But I also, you know, people with that are divorced try to compare their widowhood with, or our widowhood with their divorce. And you really can't, even though for some of them it wasn't a choice, mm-hmm. it's just we're in a different place. And we can have that crowded marriage that people think it is because it's, it's a love. It's, it's, it's right. Well, I, I guess in some sense that would be a little similar to um, how can you have, you know, two children or <laughs> I, I don't, I don't feel that as a conflict, uh, you know. But there's a lot it, of people that do. Yes. I mean, there's a lot of people, I mean, I hear, you know, as with you, but I spend a lot of time with widows and they try to date and the, and the person doesn't want to be part of, you know, it's, as they say, it's messy or it's complicated or there's baggage, you know, and I disagree with all of that. I don't think there's any complications here. It's pretty black and white. I've got, you know, two sets of in-laws, you know, it's, it's pretty yeah. black and white. <laughs> I have two sets of in-laws that are aging every day. Well, the other thing that, um, that I thought a lot about when I met my second wife is the degree to which she got a better me. Oh, there's no question about it. You hit <laughs> that one strong. I don't think I would ever be who I am 
now if I hadn't gone through my loss. I mean, we'll never know, Cheryl, and hindsight is a beautiful thing, but I think I am so much more in tune with life and my surroundings because of the loss. And certain things are just not as big a deal, too. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Certain arguments I used to have with people I dated or, you know, I didn't argue so much with my first wife. We just didn't have that type of relationship. But, you know, you could get very concerned about certain issues that just don't have any impact on me anymore. They're just not relevant (laughs) somehow. So I think that... That's a potential that can happen for some people that certain things just become unimportant. Right. Right. Or you have a better coping or, you know, you know whether it's important or it just, it just rolls off your shoulders differently. Yeah. Well, I guess part of that is uh, survivability. You know, we've both lived through what maybe some people would think is, you know, one of the worst things. But Correct. once once you have, you know, you can live through worse things. Right. So, you know, my but the work that I do in the workplace, that's what I try to share, especially when there's a death of an employee, because it's so it's so disruptive. Mm-hmm. And I try to share just how, you know, the timeline works and what happens and the, you know, the elephant becomes in the room because nobody wants to talk about it. So it's just how to integrate it all. Yeah, I'm I'm very interested in in that work you do um because I find working with grieving people that the difference for a person uh having an emotionally intelligent workplace versus an unintelligent workplace oh just a huge difference for the griever. Right. And what I'd like to do to make it so it does become a compassionate workplace my work is really not as much with the griever like you are. Mine is with the coworkers, managers, employer, a, you know, HR, the EAP. I'm working with all of them because I, to make the transition and understand what happens. Because- Absolutely, that's exactly what I was what I was um, referring to. Just that person comes back into the environment, and they're either going to feel isolated. Uh, alienated and exhausted, or they're going to feel supported, Correct. depending on what people do. <laughs> and, how, and how they know how to handle the situation. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Did that come out of you being well-supported in your workplace or, or not so well-supported? Both. How's uh-huh. that for an answer? Uh-huh. What it came out with is that because I came from corporate America, because I was a manager in a Fortune 100 company, multiple Fortune 100 companies, I understood a little bit more about how corporate America worked. And I know, I know not all grief in the workplace is corporate America, but that's how it started. That's uh-huh, the history uh-huh. of it. And I wrote a program and I just started presenting, you know, lunch and learns and those types of programs or, and just talking to HR of how the experience could be. If my coworkers didn't know what to do, they ran away. Yeah. And then I had, you know, all these people that worked for me and they didn't know how to interact with me anymore because their strong manager was no longer a strong manager in their yes. eyes. Yeah. We're getting towards the end of our time and I'd like to end with that um, section about bridging the gap. We just have a couple of minutes left, but I, I think we have time to hear that and it's such a nice way to end. Okay, so day 329, and I'm not sure why it's day 329, it just is. It's <laughs> called Bridge the Gap. 
There will always be obstacles to bridging the gap between your life before the loss and your current grief journey. Newly bereaved are encouraged to press on and show commitment to working through the many ups and downs that are experienced after a loss. As time passes, the expectations increase that the grieving process should come to an end. In reality, there is no end. The before and after are connected by the bridge. Each day, strive to bridge the gap which exists between where you are now and the goal you intend to reach. And that's what we've talked about for the last 20 minutes. Absolutely. I, I want to thank you so much for being here, Rachel. It's been a total pleasure. And thank you, Cheryl. And thank and, you to your listeners for listening to a subject that is just, re- it's just really special. Mm. And find Rachel at rachelcodanas.com. Next week, I'll be talking with Tracy Cleantis, author of The Next Happy, Letting Go of the Life You Planned and Find the New Way Forward. The loss of her own dreams eventually led to new dreams, including her book. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.